What fresh hell is this? Mommy! Where are my damn glasses? Alicia, it's your mother. When you get a chance, give me a call, please. Thank you. Has anybody seen my phone? Mom! Mom! Honey! Oh, shit. I think something's burning in the kitchen. Where are my damn glasses? Mama! Alicia, I just hung up with producers. They loved your read. They said you owned the room. Great job, sweetheart. But they're going in another direction. Which direction? Away from you. Mom, never mind. Oh, great. Found my glasses. Hello, I'm Alicia Coppola. I'm an actress an author of Gracefully Gone on Amazon, hard copy and Kindle, shameless plug. Wife, mother of three kids, chef, laundress, maid, vacuumer of copious amounts of dog hair. But who I really am is a bootstrap bitch. I have pulled myself up by my bootstraps more times than I can count. Like most of my guests that you'll hear from on this podcast, I haven't always had it easy. Everyone has a story. Some of my guests are famous. Some are just famous in their own homes. Some are getting through or have gotten through major life ordeals, and others are just trying to make it through Monday. All of their transformational journeys are inspiring, aspiring, and courageous. We who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps don't bitch. We do. Welcome to Bootstrap Bitch. I want to introduce today my guest who is just a phenomenal person. Uh, he is the uh, a legendary photographer of actors, models, musicians. I mean, everyone from Reese Witherspoon to Donald Sutherland. He does travel. I mean, he's been everywhere. What? How many countries have you been? Only 101. Only, only 101. A good beginning. <laughs> yeah, it's a good beginning. Uh, he is the uh, uh, president of the his mother's foundation, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. This is the amazing Ken Ross. Thank you for being here with me. I'm not worthy. Wow. Oh, what an introduction. Oh, wow. yes, you are. Yes, you are. Your work, how you did, th th this is, again, you know, the title of the podcast is called Bootstrap Bitch, and uh, A, your mother was the OG Bootstrap Bitch. <laughs> Yes, she was. Uh, she pretty much <laughs> the embodiment. In fact, I should just have her face as my logo. Um, but I'm so fascinated. And we're going to talk about your mom. But for you, um, starting your career in 1985 in Sydney, Australia. You've done your homework. A little bit. Um, and really, your, your career. Sorry, that is my one more thing. You know that ring thing on the door? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just one more thing to make you anxious about in life because we don't have enough. It's just Our lives are complicated. Right, <laughs> one more chime on your phone. Exactly. <laughs> How you, first of all, growing up with a mother like yours, um, and I, I'm, and I say that with the utmost respect for her mind and your father's mind and they're you know traveling from switzerland to new york to chicago you were raised as like a global diplomat of death and dying yeah i was raised as a gypsy basically yes of course. you were a gypsy you were a highly educated traveling gypsy traveling gypsy and first of all coming from that upbringing um with parents who are doctors and professors and how did you find yourself going into the arts 
at at such a young age and why was it Sydney, Australia that drew you? What what was that journey like? It was a complicated journey because um, growing up, I was extremely shy and quiet. I mean, I would sit in my room for days on end, you know, happy to be by myself, barely integrating with my family, let alone people in the outside world. And so I always dreamed of a job where I didn't have to talk. And I thought, okay, train engineer, maybe airline pilot, photographer, I can hide behind my camera. Just go shoot nature. I'm in my little happy space. Um, and I was traveling with my mother and I really got into photography and I was meeting dying people when I was growing up who were my age, eight, 10, 12 years old, who were hanging out in my bedroom saying, hey, Ken, you know, I got six weeks to live. Like, you know, go out and live your life for me because I'm going to be gone in a few weeks. So it made a big impression, you know, and I was traveling with my mom. And so we were flying to like Eskimo villages and Aleutian Islands meeting with families who had had suicides and loss, going to Africa, to huts in Zimbabwe, meeting with families who were going through grief and loss, starting hospices in South America and all over the world. And so like, you know, I got the idea, okay, life is short and precarious. We gotta go out there and like take charge of our lives and not waste time. I mean, we don't have to be maniacs and it's not a license to go out and be totally crazy, but like, you know, do things with a purpose. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to shoot 101 countries because my dad had these National Geographic magazines. And I thought, what could be a better life than being a National Geographic photographer? Because if life is short and precarious, these guys, I mean, wow, they got it made. They're hanging out of helicopters. They're meeting actors, photographing pretty girls. They're, you know, meeting tribal people. That looks like a great way to spend this like short and precarious life on this planet. So I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to check that out. And so I studied banking just to have a backup job. But when I got out of school, I couldn't get a job in banking. So I ended up moving to Australia because my dad was pissed off with me. He's like, you're not looking for a job hard enough. And I thought he's going to kill me. So I'm like, okay, Sydney, Australia, he can't strangle me down there. So I got a job for the summer, which was Christmas. And I ended up staying down there and down in Australia in the 80s. It was really easy for Americans to do anything because we had a really a big clout down there like wow Americans like you know you're so John Wayne <laughs> so I thought okay with this clout you know it's artificial clout I'm gonna be a photographer because they're not telling me no here they're like anything you want to do <laughs> and how long did you stay there I stayed there um, I've been going with my mom for workshops and things that she was giving so I had I'd already been there a couple times and I had spent a summer there and I really fell in love with it so I think uh, I ended up moving there in 85 and for maybe three years, that okay. one period. Um, and I was working illegally. So, you know, <laughs> maybe they'll catch me now, but <laughs> I'm fessing up on live on camera. But uh, yeah, I just fell in love with the lifestyle and, you know, Australia in the 80s. Sydney has 34 beaches. Yeah. And I was working night shift at a printing company during the day I was photographing. And, you know, I just had the best life in the world. Let's go. Let's go there now. Yeah, it was it was incredible. So, you know, for a young man moving to Australia with like no debt and a bunch of people, you know, who wanted to take care of my mother by taking care of me, I was just spoiled. I mean, you know, they were lending me their their boats, their Porsches, giving me beautiful homes on Sydney Harbor, you know. So it was a pretty fancy existence for a couple of years. Well, I find that really interesting that you talk about the 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 uh, precariousness. Uh, is that a word? 
precarious yeah. yes yes it is now <laughs> it is now i we've made it it that's what it copyright is. that um <laughs> yeah uh, of life and what by listening to kids your own age what in in your home your mother uh elizabeth kubler ross she was one of the first people to ask the question of a dying person what is it like to die right the thing with my mom, because she was a Swiss country doctor, right? So she came right. from these country roots where people died at home. That was the way you die. And then she comes to America, like the West. And in, in America at the time in the 60s, like it was all about technology. Technology is going to save us. Like we're yeah. not going to talk about death because that's giving up. You know, she's like, what's the big deal? We all die eventually. It's not giving up. You know, so she was trying to rehumanize the medical experience, not just of dying, but all patients. You know, and they were all about technology, technology, you know, the denial of death. And she's like, this is garbage, man. These are people. These are not just numbers in a bed. Treat them like human beings, you know, and she was disgusted. Well, I remember being introduced to your mother's work when my own father was dying. And um, uh, On Death and Dying was, I think, one of her more famous. Right. Well, mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, or one of the more mainstream. Um, but I remember thinking when I was going through the process or the journey with my own father and seeing how doctors treat diseases. Exactly. They don't treat the patient and they exactly. also don't treat the family mm -hmm. and the loved ones. Your mother was inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame, which coincidentally is in Seneca Falls where my husband is from. Oh, funny in 2007, and she was also nominated by Time Magazine as one of the most 100 important thinkers of the 20th century. Which is amazing, because I think there's only like four, five, six women on that list. So, I mean, for a little Swiss hillbilly, that's pretty good. <laughs> Your mother was two pounds at birth. Mm -hmm. She was a triplet. She survived pneumonia at the age of five. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was the passing of her roommate in the hospital that was her first true experience with the what death could be in a peaceful manner. Right. It was an example of the denial of death, but also well, how did this girl know that she's going to die? What does she mean? I'm going to go see the angels and you're going to live. How did she know this the day before she died? Right. right. I mean, incredible. And know, so that began the wheels turning. You know what? Hey, you know, I had this experience in the hospital. This is incredible. This is mind blowing, even for a child. You know, this totally changes the, the direction of you go, you're going in. Well, I would think that that did change the trajectory for her because yeah. having survived everything that she did survive, then after World War II, at the age of 13, she became a lab assistant for refugees in Zurich. Mm -hmm. and then she did relief work after the war, took a trip to Machnech in Poland mm -hmm. in 1954. Well, she was after there in 40, 47 too. She so was shoes are like right after the war, you still smell the gas chambers. I mean, what was mind blowing about that is that that was where, in hearing the horror stories of the survivors, is what brought her. Obviously, with her, you know, her 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 past mileage coming into this moment, that there's a a compassion for these stories and the resiliency of the human spirit. Mm -hmm which I found so extraordinary. And also I loved 
the fact that she spoke about seeing all the butterflies that were carved and drawn into the walls there. Right. Yeah. It had a profound ex effect on her you know, entire life. And, and because, you know, she started the hospice moving along with Dame Cicely Saunders, you know, she used the butterfly in her beginning of the hospice movement. And that's why we see the butterfly always attached to that movement is all from the concentration camps in Germany. Like people never realize that. It's fascinating because my mother, my Nana was from Bonn, Germany. So my mother's mm -hmm. half German and her favorite thing is a butterfly. There are butterflies everywhere. In fact, I have a butterfly tattoo in oh, really? dedication to my mother. And now I'm, I am I never knew that. And I've done a lot of, uh, uh, you know, reading of that time period. And now I know why, like why, why butterflies? Somewhere in my DNA, I must have known that. In my mother's DNA, she must have known that because she has butterfly earrings, jewelry, butterflies all over her room. Right, that was a huge symbol for my mom. Um, that whole period of my mom's life is just incredible. If you can imagine, you know, a teenage girl who's living 25 miles from Germany during World War II, the day the war ends, she joins a peace group and, you know, against her family's wishes, hitchhikes into the rest of Europe to go rebuild Europe when she could have been safe at home as a teenage girl with food. She goes out willingly, you know, sleeping in cemeteries so she wouldn't get raped at night and starving, like, you know, barely having any bread and almost dying over and over and over from typhoid, uh, getting third degree burns, you name it. And she just kept going. She, she could have gone back to Switzerland and been safe, but she had to go and help rebuild Europe for two years. Did she ever tell you what was compelling her, this drive, this movement toward humanity? not just getting busy with the art of living, but with the understanding and the compassion for the dying. What was that? I think it was just built into her soul because, you know, as a very young girl, she used to go off into the forest and rescue animals. And she'd bring home all sorts of animals and rescue them and bandage them up and do everything. And it made her parents crazy. And she said, oh, I have to save these animals. So it was just innate sense of, you know, rescuing people, serving the underserved, um, you know, being of service to humanity it was always from the time she was a little girl and could walk. She was rescuing things. She was defending the underdog at school. You know, everything she did was kind of focused on being of service. So it wasn't one thing, but there are, of course, you know, a number of key moments in her life. But I think it was just meant to be like she was born to do this. Everything, you know, she had so many challenges in life. I mean, you know, every five, seven, ten years, there's a huge challenge in her life. I mean, you know, basically she kind of lost her family because she moved out to California. And then, you know, she was losing her status as a doctor because she was talking about the dying. And then again, she was risking her entire reputation because she was talking about life after death and near-death experiences. And then she was, you know, assaulted. She was attacked in Virginia for trying to build up a hospice for AIDS babies, burnt her house down for the second time, you know, and nothing would slow her down. I mean, no matter what, she just kept going. Bootstrap bitch. Yeah. And even after multiple strokes, you know, when she was paralyzed at home, she wrote three more books. I mean, you know, it's just incredible. What was her philosophy on dying? She would say like, you know, I find it very ironic that, you know, I'm talking about life after death or near death experiences. And everyone's attacking me, and yet 
she said, I will go to these people and say, excuse me, do you go to church? And they're like, yes. Well, what do you do at church? Well, I pray to God and talk to Jesus and the archangels. And she goes, well, how is that any different from what I'm talking about? That, like, I'm not talking about, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost. I'm talking about, you know, religion, spirits, Jesus. This is what I'm talking about. You know, so hey, you do it too. You just kind of mask it in religion, but it's absolutely no different from what I'm talking about. And then two, I've talked to, you know, I don't know how many thousands, three, four, five thousand people who've died on operating tables or motorcycle accidents or whatever and came back and I am just repeating their experiences. I'm not making up stuff. I'm just telling you what they said. So, you know, if you want to crucify me over that, they've all had the same experience. You know, they see the white light. They say people have died before. They have things that cannot be explained by science, right? You know, like one person said, you know, please tell my mother I'm with my brother. And at that same moment, unbeknownst to him, his brother had died of like a heart attack at the same moment. So he did not have the information. His brother was dead. And yet he's saying, I'm with my brother, you know? So, I mean, if you hear this a couple hundred times, then you begin to think, hey, something's going on. Yes, you know, yes, I would I mean, some people say it's just, oh, it's just the brain protecting itself or whatever. But, you know, no, that doesn't explain a story like that. I remember looking at my father when he was dying. Um, and, uh, and, and dying people are very tricky. They, they, they can sometimes be, be very tricky. Um, you know, like right when we thought he was at his last breath, he would open his eyes and ask for Burger King. Right. Like, dude, you were supposed to die 10 minutes ago. <laughs> exactly. and now we have to go supersize it. All right. What do you want? All right. A whopper. Okay. My mother was um, asking for Taco Supremes at one in the morning. Yes. Yeah, so I'm hungry. Can you get me that food, that funny food from Mexico? I'm like, yeah, okay, mom. Yeah, <laughs> see, they're very tricky. You know, they could be in a coma and all yeah. of a sudden they're, you know, walking to take a shower. Um, right. And I don't mean to make light of it, but quite frankly, I find um, Gallo's humor is quite healing. Yeah, I mean, definitely people go off in different directions, but I have a good appreciation for that too. Yes, I know you do. I know you do. So I knew that it, it, would, it would be safe with you. But I do remember my dad, he used to uh, hold up his hand and he used to say he was talking to the hard lady with blue hair. Wow. And he used to have conversations with people who had passed. And we would just sit there and watch him have these conversations. And it was, it was, it was, very, very fascinating. And also, and people don't, don't believe me when I say this, um, but I believe that your mother, A, would not only believe me, but she would jump on the bandwagon. I find dying people and sitting with the dying very peaceful. Yeah, that's exactly how Elizabeth felt. I mean, you know, for her, like death was like, going down to the drugstore or something. She's like, what's the big deal? You're, you're dying. You're out of pain. You, you don't have a mortgage. You're like, you're totally at peace with all your loved ones. Like what is so bad about that? Like, so, What's the big deal? So. Right. And I also found it very much in the moment mm -hmm. when I would sit with dying loved ones, I found myself to just slow, almost like my heartbeat slowed down. There was no phones, there was no nothing. There was just mm -hmm. silence and peacefulness. And there was a sense of everything is as it should be. 
Right. It could be very healing and very enriching, like, you know, especially based on how you live your life. I mean, but, it, you know, it's a life lesson and it's a beautiful experience to share this moment with people. Like, you know, one of the crucial moments in life is death. And if you can share it with them and, and get over your fears and not project things and just be at peace with them and in their space, you know, it's a great thing. I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's the bookend to childbirth. Yeah. You, know, you have your birth doula and then you can have your death doula. And right. I think, and, um, and I did that for my aunt, my mother's best friend. I flew home. I did a, like a 36 hour turnaround to mm -hmm. fly home. And I sat with my aunt and her family and cause they had never been through anything like that. And I just sat in the room with them and, you know, listened to the rattle saw the agitation, saw the smoothness and the slowness of the breath. And, and I just felt incredibly uh, needed by my aunt in that moment. Mm -hmm. I think she was really happy that I was there to be with her family and to guide, to, to guide them all through. Right. And, and mom said, you know, they all know you're there. I mean, they may be unconscious, they may be in a coma, but they know, you know, and when you go to the other side, they'll acknowledge that. <laughs> so. I hope so. The only thing I have to say, and I think that your mother would agree with me, I think there should be a hospice Hooters. <laughs> Girls in like Hooter outfits giving out jello shots in hospice. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's a new concept. <laughs> so. I think for the caregivers, I think it would make everybody just a little jello shot. And everybody, you know, like every couple of hours, a little cart would come down with a girl in a cute little candy striper outfit, you know, right. handing out some shots to everybody. Just well, to I've read about some French hospices that do have like wine bars. Why aren't we doing that here? Exactly. <laughs> it's so civilized, it's elegant, and everybody could just, because, you know, listen, the dying, they're all right. You know, right. they're usually on morphine drips or something. Right. We're the ones with the issues. <laughs> We're the ones with the issue. We're the right. ones who are who are agitated and anxious and sad and crying and depressed and hysterical. Or le I mean, all the emotions at once. It's just right. like a cornucopia of crap. Oh, yeah. Guilt, loss, uh, like, you know. Yes. I need forgiveness. Like, oh, my God, why didn't I say this earlier? Regret. <laughs> exactly. Guilt, mm -hmm. loss, regret. Yeah. And that's when I think something like what they have in France, but they do everything good in France. <laughs> pretty much. They do everything pretty, good pretty much. <laughs> yeah. My husband and his buddy were talking about, uh, where can you go where you can have a mistress legally? And they both said, France. France. <laughs> now, did your mom work with David Kessler? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. okay, did you know he's my neighbor? Well, I was interested because I saw that he added a sixth stage. Right. So, so can you, know. you explain the first five for us? <laughs> can anyone explain the first five? <laughs> so, um, well, you know, I, I don't have a chart. Usually I have a chart sitting here. Of course, I can't find it now that I want it. But <clears throat> denial. So, so basically, you know, my mother was trying to explain in 1969 that death is complicated. Right. That wasn't a common idea back then. And so she's saying death is composed, uh, grief rather is composed of different elements, such as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. You know, basically there's five main stages. There's not exclusively five stages, but this is like a shorthand 
to talk to patients so that patients and doctors could have a common language because there was no common language, there was no interface, there was, you know, doctors talked about these medical terms, patients were talking about, you know, human soul, love things, family things, and doctors were here and, and patients were here. My mother was trying to build a language, a commonality, that they could talk about something together of what the patient wanted to express. So the five stages to me is like a shorthand for a more complicated experience, because she said, obviously, you know, there could be other things. There could be anxiety, preparatory grief, partial denial, there's hope, there's shock. You know, she talks about all this in On Death and Dying, but I think the publisher kind of focused in by creating chapters on those five stages, but there's also an entire chapter on hope, but no one ever mentions that as being one of the stages. And other authors, they've even written books saying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did not realize that hope was a part of the five stages. I'm like, read the book. Read the book, yes. So yes, so the five stages do exist because tens of thousands of people have written, yes, I went through the stages. But no, it's not the only way you do it. And no, it's not necessarily linear. Or no, you don't go through all of them. You could just be in anger the whole time. Or you could have no stages. But this is what Elizabeth said, but it's been misrepresented and you know it's become like cartoon characters right you see it on tv on gray's anatomy or something and then you go oh well that's not right elizabeth you know what was she talking about you know i'm like no this is the gray's anatomy version this is not the elizabeth kubler ross version so don't judge her on what you see on 30 rock <laughs> right <clears throat> so you know it's been on over 100 tv shows in over 50 movies you know, it's all over the place, but people get the idea. But because they saw, you know, uh, a Peanuts cartoon on it, that's what it is. So that's the simplified, you know, American version of it. But yes, it's, it's just to demonstrate that grief is composed of different elements. Like uh, Claire Bidwell-Smith wrote, um, the sixth uh, stage was on anxiety, right? Or another author did seven stages. There's a book on the eight stages, a book on the nine stages. Someone talks about the 23 stages, right? Oh, that's a lot of stages. Yeah. So my mother said, look, whatever you want to talk about is great. As long as we're having the conversation, that's what I was trying to do is just start the conversation. You don't like the stages. That's great. If David Kessler wants the six stages, that's great. You know, I mean, it's not wrong or right. It's just one way to interpret it, right? <clears throat> the five stages are not necessarily wrong or right. But it's Elizabeth trying to develop a dialogue that we can all get our heads around and remember easily. Her work is ex is extensive, and the expanse of it is just mind blowing. But it all, for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, boils down to the simple fact of the compassion that she felt for humanity. Yeah, uh, she was reversing the dehumanization of the medical experience and death. Exactly. She was trying to inject hope into the idea of death. She was trying to tell us to focus our lives love-based instead of fear-based. Fear lives with unconditional love. That was like if she said, don't forget about the stages. Just think about listening, unconditional love, hope. That's enough. I mean, if you learn nothing else from my work, just focus on those things and you'll be fine. Well, that's what I feel from it. I, I just mm -hmm. feel as though your mom was just focusing on the moments mm -hmm. and the simplicity of it all. 
and by talking to the dying. Nobody talk, as society, we're told not to talk about that. It's not polite talk to talk about the dying or to talk about death, or if so, it's done in a sensationalized way, you know? Right. Um, it, you know, it hits our Twitter feed, our Facebook feed, feed or whatever, and then it's it's yesterday's news within two and a half seconds. Yeah. But nobody actually has the conversation. You know, when I was growing up and nobody would ever talk to me about the fact that my father had brain cancer and what that was going to look like. And certainly the doctors didn't give a shit to talk to me or my brother. You know, right. we were left on our own devices while my mother was taking care of my father. I mean, I, I, I remember my father teaching me to drive right before he was diagnosed. And so there I was at 12 years old driving my brother around <laughs> because I had to, but there was, there was no adults who would sit down with us and explain what was going on there. The doctors didn't, my mother couldn't cause she didn't really have the language. Our grandparents were from a completely different, you know, yeah. I had stoics on the different one mindset. side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a different mindset. Mm -hmm. And so her book to me gave me some kind of um, uh, Bible if you will, that I could look into and I could pray to, and I could say, okay, well, I get this. You know, it was the only thing that I had to go, oh, okay, so this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so grateful that she just boiled it down to the simple fact that everything that I was feeling, I was not crazy. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, so many people project their own fears that it comes out in different ways. It comes out in anger or it comes out as in, let's not talk about it but it's all fear-based and that's the whole problem. Um, my mom said, we all live our lives so fear-based on everything. Like, you know, how do I look? You know, uh, do I have the right house, the right car, the right clothes, the right everything? You know, all that stuff just screws us up. I mean, focus on quality, not quantity. Focus on love and not all the material things, you know? And, and she said the same thing is true in a the hospital. They just focus on the wrong things. Everything in life is like, so mis, you know, directed into the wrong direction. She said, people are afraid to die because they've been afraid to live and they've wasted this beautiful gift. If they've lived their lives fully, then they'll never be afraid to die because they'll have had the most beautiful life they could possibly imagine. And, you know, they'll be fine with dying because they didn't waste it. So well, that's the lesson. Like, yeah, saying, you know, saying I love you. I've never regretted saying I love you. Right even if it wasn't requited, but I've never regretted saying it because it was what I felt at the time. Mm -hmm. And so then I had no regrets. So basically exactly. her language is her, her philosophy is, is, is get busy living. Yeah. Take a chance. If you're not making mistakes, you're doing something wrong because you're not trying hard enough, you know, go out there and take chances let your shield down, get out of the box, be a little crazy and, you know, go for it because the clock is ticking and the alarm's going to go off and that's it. No more chances. So at least I, in this lifetime. So. I, I remember looking at my dad once when, when he, he in, in the last part of his life, he had a couple of uh, lucid moments and I remember him looking at me and I thought to myself, very, very, it became so clear to me because my father was not the breadwinner of the family. He was the artist, you know, it was my mother and, and her family. They had family businesses. And I always said to myself, I wonder if my dad ever felt that he wasn't successful. Mm -hmm. And in that moment that he looked at me, 
I saw him take me in, my brother and my mother in, and I knew that he was not thinking I should have made more money. Hmm. I should have been at that board meeting. I should have, I should have, could have, would have, none. I didn't see any of that. I just saw him take us in and realized, I realized in that moment that my father was a huge success. That's, that's, you know, that's success. I mean, success is like getting rid of all the junk and focusing on love and family and things of value that are not monetary or material. So, you know, my, my mother would say, your father graduated with honors, you know, because that's what she called death graduating, right? And so she said, oh, he, oh, he got like, you know, he got a major diploma. He got a, like a PhD. Like, I love that. He did. He got a PhD. But, but for me, the kid at 22nd, you know, at, on my 22nd birthday, it was right around there that he died. Well, no, he died in January and I turned 23. So I, yeah, I was 22. I felt like I learned something in that moment. I felt that I learned that, and of course, in life's quotidian bullshit, I've lost it. But I try to call it back as much as I can, the things that actually matter. And the perseverance, you know, the, the pulling yourself up by the bootstrap, the getting on with it, and the not only getting on with it, but embracing it. Yeah, and that's exactly what Elizabeth said. She said the dying are the greatest teachers in life because they reset you, reset all your values, and they like put perspective on everything. So we should all look, you know, talk to the dying because they'll teach you about life. <laughs> your mother taught us all about life and you, how you how you managed to take care of your mother for all those years and still be able to go pursue your dreams is also fascinating. Yeah, she taught me a lot about that because, you know, if you can imagine, she began working with the dying basically when she was about 40 years old and retired in her 60s, right? So in that time, she wrote two dozen books, traveled to dozens of countries, started the hospice movement, AIDS projects, vet projects, started the first hospice in a jail. Uh, she was doing workshops around the world, answered hundreds of thousands of letters, was a doctor, had a working farm, was, you know, all this stuff and she just kept on going it was insane so kind of like that's my role model of like oh i got a lot of stuff to do before i check out <laughs> so. too bad she was so lazy yeah exactly lazy <laughs> hack of a woman yeah. yeah those old like swiss country values man like uh, those germanic values like oh wow we gotta keep going like snowstorm great let's go <laughs> yes it's almost like anything that was thrown at her she was just like what else you got yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to climb higher now. So you're not going to stop me. So that's how you, that's what you learned from her. So that while you were taking care of her, you were still able to go do what yeah, you needed to do. It was, it was tough. But, uh, you know, I remember the day after her house fire, her second fire, you know, she had a small stroke, a TIA. In the middle of the stroke, like, I'm going, let's call 911. She's like, ah, bullshit. Get me a, a cigarette. She's like, you know, showing me, get me a cigarette, you know? And then she's like, I'm going to rebuild the house. Screw them. Yeah, they're not going to stop me. And like, I'm like, mom, you're having a stroke. <laughs> like, you cannot smoke. We got to go to the doctor. Like, don't worry about the house. She's like, ah, bullshit. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, wow, this woman is stubborn. It's <laughs> unbelievable. How did your father handle that kind of spirit, that kind of drive, the tenacity of her? 
Yeah, he had an incredible sense of humor. Uh, that helped a lot. And um, yeah, he was incredibly hardworking himself. I mean, imagine he went to medical school in Switzerland and did not speak German. Can you imagine? I mean, who studies medicine in a language you don't even speak? I mean, it's hard enough in your own language. So that guy was brilliant and great sense of humor and loved my mom. And even after they split, they were still best friends. And, uh, you know, it was tough for him, too. My mother was tough for everybody. <laughs> I mean, you know, friend or foe, she was tough. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was still an amazing ride. <laughs> it's, it, it is an amazing ride. I mean, your childhood and, and your, your adolescent, I mean, everything must have been so, so amazing. Yeah, everything was also like more, more, more. Like, wow. Like, you know, she was, she was taking me to see witch doctors and Zulu shaman, uh, shaman and, you know, Eskimo healers and, uh, you know, Indian healers. And everywhere we went, it had to be indigenous people because they really got it. They were like, they understood life better than Western people. Like they understood death and life and they, ha they had a better sense of value. So she was always, wherever we went, we had to go see the indigenous people. Well, they yeah. probably had a bar. Yeah. So uh, it was incredible. Like one time I went to my mom's house and she was in the hospital and there's 18 American Indians setting up a teepee in her front yard. And I'm like, hey, who are you? And they're like, no, who are you? And I'm like, no, who are you? And it was like a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> so eventually they said, well, we're honoring your mother. She is a great spirit. She's like a, like a medicine woman. And we've never given this to a white woman before but we'd like to honor your mother. Where is she? And I go, well, she's in the hospital and she's very anxious for me to go back and get her clothes so she can get out of the hospital. She's checking herself out early, of course. And they're like, oh, no, no, you don't understand. This is a very big honor. You're going to have to smoke the peace pipe with us. I'm like, oh, no, no, you don't understand. My mother is pissed off <clears throat> and it's going to be hell to pay for if I don't get her clothes. And you go, no, 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 no. This is a very big honor. So I had to sit in her driveway smoking a peace pipe for three hours while my mother's calling me every 15, 20 minutes, like swearing at me. <laughs> so, oh, another day with Elizabeth, right? And like every week was like a soap opera with my mother. There was like people showing up like, you know, Tibetan monks and people dressed like Elvis. And yeah, it was it was a wacky nine years of taking care of her, but, but I loved it. <laughs> of course you did, of course you did. I mean, you know, it's painful and it's hard. Um, mm -hmm. But I think um, that was one of the greatest honors of my life. It was an honor, but you know, a tough lesson to learn. Uh, I had a heart attack at 42 when I was taking care of her on an airplane over Mexico. Oh God. And my mother's reaction was, ah, you're too much like your father. <laughs> <laughs> Have a cigarette, you'll be fine. Yeah, not a lot of sympathy. But <laughs> so, no, I could imagine that was but, not a lot of sympathy. But it's classic mom, so what are you gonna say? I love that. Well, I have to say this, reading your mom's work um, when my father was dying meant the world to me. And strangely enough, and this is where I have really seen, I always say angels come out to play. Mm -hmm. my, my faith really strengthened. And in looking back, I find it very interesting that all these years later, I meet Diane Gray. She's working with your foundation. Right. And she gets a hold of my book and she's been a huge, you know, huge support. I meet you. And then I've asked to become a global ambassador for the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, which humbled me. 
Oh, we're honored to have you, of course. The book that I read when my father was dead, all these journeys. And I'm like, I mean, I, I, it's a lot for my father to take for the team for me to be a global ambassador for the Elizabeth <laughs> Ross Foundation. But, but he took one for the team. And here I am now talking to you. So it, 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 it's a huge honor. Well, my mother would say there are no accidents, of course. So this was meant to be. And she believed that wholeheartedly, right? Yeah. Like, not, and I even believe, it's like saying, I believe I have a hand. I mean, it just is. Like, it is. There's nothing to believe it. It is. <laughs> like, it wasn't even like she believed. Like, so many things with Elizabeth, she just knew them. And I think people sensed, like, this woman doesn't think this stuff. She doesn't believe it. She knows it, you know? And I think that made an impression on people around the world. Because I saw her give lectures for, like, thousands of people, like, you know, in Africa and Asia and South America. You know, and there were like overflowing crowds, like, you know, four deep at the back of the room, a sellout every night. And like people were like mesmerized. I'm like, what is it about my little mother you know, who made me a pie last night that like 5000 people have come, you know, in the 1980s when there was no social media are in this room to hear my mother, you know, and like you could hear a pin drop. It's like they just said she knew this stuff. Like there she is. Like this is this is knowledge. This is not someone's opinion. This is knowledge. Like, and I think that came out in her presentations. Well, I think I have come to that realization myself that I know these things to be true. I just yeah. know them in my soul. And that's a gift because so many people wander around trying to figure out what's what and which ways up and you know what are my goals and what are my you know what's my morality and. And, but when you know this stuff, it frees you. Like, that's the thing. You want to be free of all the stuff that weighs you down. You know, once you have that, it's like, wow, I'm just like cruising at this beautiful altitude and nothing's going to pull me down. Well, that's the way I feel now. And I feel especially after talking to you because everything that I thought that, you're, that I had dreamed of what your mother would be like, you're just confirming for me because I obviously I never had the pleasure of meeting her in person. I would have loved to if I probably would have cried in a heap at the bottom of her feet in awe of her. I'm truly grateful that you spent this time with me, shared so much of your story and your mom's story through you and this foundation, this amazing foundation. I know that your mom is going to live forever. She is. So she said she's going to go dance in the galaxies and that's what she's doing. So I got little signs here and there. <laughs> so. Do you? Oh yeah. Now, sometimes like my drums just play themselves like they're electronic and it'll always be like she has a sense of humor, right? So it'll always be when I'm like bending over to tie my shoe. Only then when I'm at like a vulnerable position, the drum will hit and I'll be, damn it, mom, like, can you give me another heart attack? So, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. I, I, find, I, um, I find pennies. Whenever I'm deep in thought about something or trying to make a decision, or if I'm concerned about something, I just look down and there's a penny. And then I know that my dad's there. Right, and with my mom, it was four leaf clovers. Oh, I love that. Everywhere she went, four leaf clovers, like she could be like, you know, in the middle of a city, look down on a sidewalk and there's a four leaf clover growing out of a crack, like everywhere she went. <laughs> well, isn't that the perfect paradigm really for your mother that out of the crack of a cement, because she had such difficult things thrown at her and a difficult life, a difficult start to find the luck. Oh yeah. 
you know, and it's, and a lot of it is like so much about perspective, right? You know, I mean, that was her sort of lesson from the concentration camps, you know, meeting a girl whose whole family had been murdered in front of her, that she was going to go help rebuild German villages. I mean, really? You know, and that taught her that we can all take any hardship, anything that life throws at us and either be a Mother Teresa or a Hitler, but it's up to us to decide what perspective and what lesson we're going to learn, you know, and that totally changed everything for my mother. She, that's why, you know, she said the dying can have beautiful experiences and we can have beautiful experiences if we learn to see the perspective correctly.